Welcome to Percolating Perspective, your podcast to fall in love with and to embrace American culture and the Western way of life over a piping hot black cup of coffee. I'm your host, Gordon Michael Porter. Thank you so much for tuning in today and taking the time out of your busy schedule to learn a little bit about your home, America, and the, the civilization known as the West. Today we have a jam-packed show for you that you cannot miss. It is going to be one of our best episodes. Thank you again so much for tuning in. Let's get into the drip of the day. Today's drip comes to us from a company called Deathwish. Now, on its face, that sounds kind of uh, dangerous. <laughs> uh, and it is really good coffee. Um, you can get this at Walmart, you can get it online, I think you can even get it at Target, uh, and when Dixie, Publix, anywhere you get your coffee, you can get Deathwish. Today's is uh, a medium roast, which is just right for what I normally do. About, you know, two and a half uh, cups, or I'm sorry, tablespoons per ounce, which coincidentally, we actually mentioned that a few episodes ago, um, that that was, you know, sort of my choice, or that was my, you know, mix that I like to go with. Believe it or not, the Death Wish bag, that is exactly what they have on the side of the bag, is my ratio that I use all the time is to about two and a half to three tablespoons per six ounces. So that's pretty cool, right? Um, this coffee is just good. I, you know, it's just a good cup of coffee. It, uh, it's got a lot of caffeine in it. In fact, the dark roast, uh, they've got a dark roast and they have an espresso also. Um, and they are, they will get you wired up. They are good. You know, they're, you know, in my personal opinion, you know, they're not exactly the leader in the flavor department, but they have a, they pack a wallop when it comes to caffeine and getting you buzzing. They, it's, it's, it's the right tool for the right job. You know, it, it doesn't fit every tool or it doesn't fit every job, excuse me. But, you know, a late night, like, you know, you know, doing homework or doing some studying or, you know, even if you just want to stay up a little bit and hang out with friends or whatever else, this is a good cup of coffee to keep you going long into the night. Or if you're having a little trouble uh, trouble getting up in the morning, uh, you know, it's Monday, you had a long weekend, had a fun weekend, this is the cup of coffee to get you just bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, you know, just getting down the road quick. So check them out, Deathwish. Uh, again, I am working on the medium roast today. Again good cup of coffee. I say that about all of our coffee that we try because it's coffee. It's just good. It's just good. Coffee is just good. I like coffee. Maybe someday, you know, maybe on one of the next few podcasts, we'll talk about uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, who actually brought this magnificence in a cup to us, uh, as many other things too. But coffee I mean, if you if you bring coffee to mainstream life, I think you've made it. That that is that should be the end for you. You can retire after you've done that, Sir Walter Raleigh. So for that, we thank you. All right, this week we are going to talk about the U.S. Constitution 
and more specifically, the Bill of Rights, and even more specifically than that, the First Amendment. Now, I'm I'm hoping that you'll remember from, from school, uh, whether that's high school, college, whatever, possibly even middle school, the Bill of Rights refers to the first ten amendments in the Constitution. So you've got... Uh, you know, several rights that were protected in there. Several states would not ratify the Constitution unless these uh, rights were recognized by the Constitution. They were having rights trampled, you know, left and right by the king at the time, by the British. And so they said, we're not going to subject ourselves to another government unless these rights are specifically enumerated by the government as sacred and undeniable and protected. So, lo and behold, they came up with the Bill of Rights, which we now have uh, as the first ten individual amendments to the Constitution. Now, what we're going to talk to, to uh, excuse me, what we're going to talk about today is the First Amendment. Now, many people probably remember the First Amendment as, you know, one right, right? Either the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion, maybe both. But I ask you. How many rights are recognized in the First Amendment? And I'll, I'll pause here and give you a second. Don't look it up. That's cheating. If you can tell me off the top of your head how many rights are in the First Amendment, you are in the vast minority. I will go ahead and tell you there are five. There are five rights enumerated and recognized in the First Amendment. It is the only amendment that does that, at least in the Bill of Rights, in the first ten. It is the only uh, member of the Bill of Rights that recognizes five rights in the one amendment. Now, let's backtrack just a little bit here. Unlike the Declaration of Independence, there are many things in the Constitution that are not direct from Scripture. Uh, If you'll go back and listen to, we had two episodes on the Declaration of Independence, part one and part two. Uh, a lot of uh, there's a lot of meat in those two podcasts, so I encourage you to go back and listen to those two. And if you uh, listen to those two, or if maybe you remember the episodes, there's a lot there's a lot of scripture, um, you know, verbatim in the Declaration of Independence. But there's also a lot of uh, scripture referenced, um, and then there's also a lot of scripture that is present via principle. So maybe not necessarily directly, li- you know, line for line, word for word enumerated there, but the principles are there. Very similar thing in the Constitution where there's not a lot that is verbatim copied out of the Bible. There is some, but the Constitution in general is not directly from Scripture. Now, again, the principles line up with biblical precedent. Uh, The direction the Constitution was given was based on the Bible. And today we're going to talk about a few of those things, but, um, you know, I would, we'll have more episodes coming forth on this, but do your own homework. Don't take anything that I say on this podcast as truth. You do your homework, your own homework, verify everything I say. And if there's anything that's out of line, I encourage you, let me know. I want to know the truth. I am searching for the truth and I hope that you are. And I hope that's what brought you to this podcast. But again, don't take anything I say for truth. You do your own homework and you look at it for yourself. Now, to set the tone about what brought the Constitution to us. So, let's go back to May 25th of 1787. The Constitution Convention, uh, or what we call the Constitutional Convention, is a, is a, it's completely sold out. 
because every colony at this point, we've just come out of the American Revolution, and each colony has their own separate interests, right? You've got New York all the way down to Georgia. You've got New Jersey. You've got the Carolinas. You've got all these different, basically little bitty countries that have come together in a united fashion to beat the tyranny of Great Britain. But they, they're all different. They have their own different economies. Georgia's economy is very different. It's radically different than the New York economy. New York is very, you know, at the time, there's a lot of, you know, mercantile. Uh, there's a lot of um, shipping and receiving out of the harbor and out of the ports in New England. Georgia is a lot of farming. You've got a lot of, you know, of course, at this time, we have the slave plantation still, and that's not just Georgia, but the southern states. And so their economies are very different. Their interests as entities are very different. And so the Constitutional Convention is at a complete stall out because each colony is unwilling to move uh, and to, to work with the other colonies to have all interests protected. So arguments and feuds began to break out amongst the representatives of the colonies. And then, you know, this goes on for months, all the way to September 17th of 1787. And then finally, after arguing for, for months, wise, now old, Benjamin Franklin, you know, the atheist, stands up and gives this incredible speech and actually exhorts the, the representatives there because they're not praying enough. He is encouraging them to pray more. When I say that Franklin is an atheist, I say that very tongue-in-cheek. And the reason I say that it is tongue-in-cheek is because he gives this speech to the men there, the representatives here at the Constitution Convention. And I want you to listen to what, I, what I'm reading here and tell me how many Bible verses he quotes here in this, uh, in this speech. He says, Mr. President, the small progress we have made after four or five weeks close attendance and continual reasonings with each other, our different sentiments on almost every question, several of the last producing as many no's as a's, is methinks a melancholy proof of the imperfection of the human understanding. We indeed seem to feel our own want of political wisdom, since we have been running about in search of it. We have gone back to ancient history for models of government and examined the different forms of those republics which have been formed with the seeds of their own dissolution now no longer exist. And we have viewed modern states all around Europe, but find none of their constitutions suitable to our circumstances. In this situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how is it happened, that, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of Lights to illuminate our understandings? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for the divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men, 
And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, sir, in the sacred writings, that it, quote, except the Lord build, they labor in vain that build it, end quote. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests, our projects will be confounded, and we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future age. And what is worse, mankind may hereafter from this unfortunate instance despair of establishing governments by human wisdom and leave it to chance, war, and conquest. I, therefore, beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberations be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business, and that one or more of the clergy of this city be requested to officiate in that service. Not bad for an atheist. Once this speech is given, George Washington calls for a church service and ushers all the representatives in Philadelphia to the closest church where the pastor prays for over an hour. And you can actually find the prayer that was um, uttered at this service. You can go online, you can type in, you know, George Washington, um, Philadelphia prayer. Uh, constitution prayer, constitutional prayer, you'll find it. Uh, I'll post it on my Facebook and Instagram, um, the, the actual prayer where you can read it, because I don't really know what search terms uh, that you could do, you know, put into Google and find it immediately. Uh, it takes some digging, all of this does, um, unfortunately. But again, I'll post that all on my social media, but you can see the prayer. It's not just a little wimpy prayer. It's some, you know, three or four pages along with small font. You know, this was not just a, you know, uh, run-of-the-mill, you know, you know, the normal prayer we hear, you know, that's two or three minutes long. This was, this was over an hour, uh, just a lot of praying. The representatives then go home for a few days after this and spend time praying and fasting themselves. And mysteriously, the selfishness and the contention just, just dropped off, that just went away. Like magic. Um, there still were some arguments, of course. They were talking about human beings here. But the entire course of the convention had completely changed. Within three weeks, the Constitution, as we know it, was finished. Well, what was the result? We have three branches of government now. Now, where did they get the idea for three co-equal branches of government? And I, again, pause here and ask you, what are the three branches of government enumerated in the Constitution? We have Article 1, Article 2, and Article 3. We have the legislative, we have the executive, and we have the judicial. Those are the three branches of, of the government, of the U.S. government. And according to John Adams, we get those uh, co-equal branches from Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 22. Here the Bible says that God, who is a trinity, uh, he is made up of three equal entities, himself, uh, you know, and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and they all compose three equal branches or roles in government. But Isaiah 33 verse, verse 22 specifically says that the Lord is our judge, our lawgiver, and our king. 
Now, what if you were to break those three down, what are the differences in those three? Well, you have the judge. That's the judicial branch. You have the lawgiver. That's the legislative branch. And then you have the king, the executive branch. Three co-equal roles of God, of the Trinity, and they're right there in Isaiah 33, 22. That is where we get our three equal branches of government. Now, these branches are well-defined in the Constitution and derive their duties and roles, as well as some qualifications, directly from the Bible. The, leg the legislative branch, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, Article 1, uh, if you look over at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 13 through 15, this institutes what we would now call a constitutional republic, which America has. We are not a democracy. Quit saying we're a democracy. I know that is, it is very common now to hear somebody call the United States government a democracy. We are not a democracy, never have been, and I hope and pray we never are. That is tyranny by the rule of the majority, and that is not biblical. It is not a biblical way of government. Neither is socialism or communism. Those are all expressly forbidden in the Bible. But in Deuteronomy, we have a constitutional republic set up for the people of Israel. And that is what we have here in America. A body of people, you might say, of the people, by the people, and for the people, called out to make law based on the quote-unquote constitution, what they would call the Ten Commandments, and the many, many, many ordinances handed down from God in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We also have the executive branch, which is Article 2. Uh, now, I won't bore you with a ton of uh, mumbo-jumbo here, and I'll let you do a little bit of your own homework, but the executive branch has some distinct characteristics that are directly, almost verbatim, out of the Bible. And I would encourage you to look at uh, if you have a pocket constitution, pull that out. If you don't have one, you got to get one. There are there are plenty of sources where you can get one for free, including I have an app on my phone. In fact, let me pull it up here. I think I believe it's called the Patriot app. Let's see. Yep, it's called the Patriot app, and you'll see uh, the logo is an eagle, uh, bald eagle head over an American flag. But uh, there's a ton of documents in that one app. It's a free app. But pull up the Constitution, Section 1, Clause 5. That comes directly out of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 14 through 15. And then there's uh, Section 1, Clause 7, comes directly from Deuteronomy, chapter 17, 16 through 17. And then Section 1, Clause 8, comes right out of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, again, verses 18 through 20. Now, let's skip down to the judicial branch, Article 3. And just, just to kind of to, to not hurt your heart here, and I know you're begging for more and want to learn more, all this that I'm going over quickly, we are going to go over in a, another episode. And I think we're going to make this a two-parter as well. But I mainly want to get to the Bill of Rights today, but I just kind of briefly want to introduce you to the Constitution if you haven't spent a lot of time with it since high school. Our third branch and the third article is the judicial branch. The principle for the judicial branch comes out of Exodus chapter 18. Look in verse 19 through 22, and that lays out the exact role, uh, or I'm sorry, the exact judicial system that we have. Uh, and in fact, if you look over in Samuel, and again, we'll go over this in, in a later episode, but Samuel even talks about circuit courts 
and that and that they rode in circuit judging the cities. That's exactly what we have now, although they don't do it on horseback anymore. They do it over the Internet. But for years and years and years in this country, we had judges that would ride on horseback, riding in circuit from city to city, judging the people. That comes directly out of the Bible. Article 3, Section 1, Clause 1, you have inferior and superior courts. Exodus again, chapter 18, 22, 25 through 26. Then look at Section 20, uh, sorry, Section 3, Clause 1. Treason was punishable by death, or in other words, removing a man's right to life. In the Constitution, uh, it is it is not expressly enumerated that treason was punishable by death, but it was uh, um, that was common law for for it still is I you know for the most part I guess in uh, in the U.S. Uh, common law is treason is punishable by death, or again in other words removing a man's right to life, and we discussed the right to life and the importance of that and where that came from. Um, back in uh, episode, uh, I believe that was three, the Declaration Part 1. Here we see in uh, Section 3, Clause 1, uh, treason here. A person can only be convicted of treason uh, in this section unless, they cannot be convicted unless you have two or more witnesses. What does the Bible prescribe for secular government to remove man's right to life. Well, we see in, De- uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 6 and Numbers 35 and verse 30, the only way that you can take a man's life, a civil government can take a man's life uh, as, uh, as a punishment, you have to have two or more witnesses. Again, a principle directly out of the Bible right in the Constitution. By the way, this also means that the death penalty is not only condoned by God, it was his method of punishing those who stole a man's life. Take a look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 on that one. Now, how do how many people, I would guess, listening to this podcast, we just talked about this a few minutes ago, I would venture to guess that most people don't know that there are five rights in the First Amendment. There are five rights recognized in the First Amendment. Um, the First Amendment works kind of like a machine. There's five cogs in it. The five rights that are in there are cogs in a machine. When all five are present and maintained, the machine works perfectly. It carries out its intended purpose. If you remove just one of the cogs from the machine or add things to it that don't belong, such as limitations and qualifiers, the machine cannot operate correctly. So, Gordon, buddy, what are these cogs you're talking about? What are the five rights? Well, we know there is the freedom of speech. We hear that one all the time. Less we hear this, but the freedom of religion. We have the freedom of the press. We have the right of the petition to uh, peaceably, I'm sorry, right of the people to peaceably assemble. And then the fifth right is the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, how would freedom of religion work if, in fact, we were founded on Christianity? Well, simply put, this puts a huge responsibility in the lap of the American church that, quite frankly, has been neglected. The founders never intended to legislate morality and knew that it could not be done effectively anyway. We hear this question all the time, you know, in the church, outside the church, you know, well, if the founders were really Christian, why did they give us, you know, the freedom of religion? That that seems ridiculous. So any anybody can come in here and worship God as they see fit. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, actually, that's how that works. Uh, John Adams, in a letter to the officers of the 1st Brigade of the 3rd Division of the Militia of Massachusetts, said, quote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. We, of course, see that playing out every single day now. The Constitution is... Uh, it breaks my heart, but it is it is all but been crumpled up and thrown in the trash bin of history because our people are not a moral people anymore, uh, in large part. I mean, even Christians are not moral people anymore. Uh, and that's sad to say, but that's, I believe, to be the truth. The freedom of religion tells the world that if you come to the United States, we believe that God has not given government the authority to determine your religion or your method of worship for you. That is for every man to decide on his own. The founders did something interesting here in the First Amendment to go along with that and to protect that. Uh, this allows people from all creeds, denominations, religions, true or false, and you know, however you don't want to determine that and look at that, uh, to come to America where the Christian church has the rights that we're about to discuss to bring them the truth and introduce them to the Christian Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, coupled with the freedom of religion, you also have the right of the freedom to speech. I'm sorry, the right to freedom of speech. Now, this is really the engine that drives all the cogs. This is your drive wheel. Freedom of speech gives the Christian that is now allowed to worship freely without the government interfering, the ability, which, let's make a point here, uh, makes it an obligation to speak and bring people to church, to the Lord, and to speak the truth, no matter what the truth may be. Now, did God grant us a freedom of speech? I know, you know, just in, you know, in my upbringing and, you know, at Sunday school, and I think everybody's Sunday school, you know, freedom of speech was not really something we even thought about. It's not really something that came up. But God actually did grant us the freedom of speech. Now, my favorite book of the Bible, or chapter of the Bible, is 1 Samuel chapter 8. Specifically, the first mm, 20 or so verses. There's, there, this is really uh, every principle uh, regarding Christianity in the United States comes right out of this chapter. Now, if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 9... Even God himself here didn't silence his dissenters. Now, uh, to kind of give you the story here and bring you up to speed, so 1 Samuel chapter 9, Samuel's kids were horrible. They were not good kids. And the Israelites saw that, and they saw that as an excuse to change their form of government. Uh, God set up their government for them, or at least gave them the, you know, the means and methods of how to do that, and they didn't like it. And this particular chapter tells you why they didn't like it. In fact, in verse 8, it says, Samuel, give us a king like all the other nations. Now, this time, all the other nations besides Israel are what we would call pagan or heathen. They are, they are without God. They have no moral mooring. Israel is the only one at this point that does. And they are saying, hey, all these other countries around us have a king, and we really like that. We really want that. Give us a king like all the other nations. And the Bible says the thing displeased Samuel. He did not like it because he knew that was not God's method of government. And so God says, look, 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 Samuel, 
They are not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to hear them out. I want you to go to them, hear what they have to say, let them make their case. And then when they finish, and so basically he makes it very clear here that you don't interrupt them. Just listen to what they have to say. And he says, whenever they finish, you give them exactly what this king is going to do, what an absolute monarch and a tyrant is going to do for them. He's going to take your kids, he's going to take your money, he's going to take your, your farm animals, he's going to take everything you have, and he's going to make it his own and spare you no mercy. Well, it turns out he was exactly right. But the point here was, is he allowed Israel to speak their minds, God did, and even allowed them to act on the will of the majority, which this passage proves always ends poorly. They did wind up doing it after God told them not to. And if you skip on over to chapter 12, you see that Israel repents for the, quote, evil of asking them a absolute monarch or a king. Now, 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 9 protects your right to the freedom of verbal speech. Now, what is the third cog in this in this machine here. Well, the third cog is the freedom of the press. This isn't just for the news. I know we like to call it the press nowadays, but just the press, you know, the, the word press does not just mean the media. This is a word for a relatively new technology at the time called the printing press. This protects your right to the freedom of written word. For example, social media censoring. I have a lot of libertarian friends that say that social media is a private organization and they can do whatever they want. Well, that's not true. In fact, if you look at the Declaration of Independence, it says the government's only job is to protect your God-given rights from a tyrant. Now, it does not say who it is to protect them from. Is it supposed to protect them from itself? Or from itself, rather? Well, sure. But it doesn't say that. It says that the government's job is to protect your rights, your God-given rights, from anybody. And if a private organization is trying to, sh to silence dissenters of a government, they are out of line, and the government has a responsibility to correct that. That is just my opinion, but it's the right opinion. So that's my five cents worth. Governments are instituted among men to do what? Protect your rights. From whom? Anyone. This also, this third cog, the freedom of the press, permanently protects the printing of the Bible. Now remember, the founders are coming off the heels of a time where the Bible could only be printed by the British government. And by the way, to all of our friends who like to scream about the separation of church and state... The Bible, the first Bible ever printed on U.S. soil was commissioned by Congress and a private printer was given the money to print the first non-British printed Bible ever. Congress did that. Your United States, under the U.S. Constitution, government did that. And I encourage you to Google that and look it up. Uh, it, there are several examples of this Bible that still exist and it's incredibly important. Because English language Bibles could not be printed in America, but had to be imported, when the revolution began and the British began to blockade all materials coming to America, the ability to obtain such Bibles ended. Therefore, in 1777, America began experiencing a shortage of several important commodities, including Bibles. 
On July 7th, a request uh, was placed before Congress to print or import more because, quote, unless timely care be used to prevent it, we shall not have Bibles for our schools and families and for the public worship of God in our churches. Congress concurred with that assessment and announced that, quote, the Congress desire to have a Bible printed under their care and by their encouragement. A special committee was then formed to oversee that project. With supply chain shortages, which we all know about now, uh, would we as Americans rise up today and ask Congress for more Bibles if they can, can became scarce? Uh, hard no. That would not happen. That would not happen in the United States. I hate to break it to you, but it wouldn't happen. The fourth cog is the right to peaceably assemble. This protects churches in saying whatever they wish to say. The government cannot shut the doors of the church. Now, again, let's think back to um, COVID. The fifth cog is the right to petition the government. The Declaration of Independence was a petition to the government for a redress of grievances. Why is this a right? Well, simply put, you control the government, not the other way around. The right to petition is the right of the people to peacefully tell the government what they're doing wrong and how they must fix it. Now, to put a bow on all this, these cogs work together and are being exercised regularly by the church or carefully designed to maintain what John Adams called a moral and religious people. The entire Constitution, according to Adams, depends on the First Amendment being utilized. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm your host, Gordon Michael Porter. Please take the time to go back and listen to Episodes 3 and 4, The Declaration of Independence, Part 1 and 2. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know the episode was a little bit long, but this is incredibly important information, and we're going to spend a, you know, a lot of time going through this stuff because... Truthfully, the founding documents have been completely forgotten, and we really don't even know what's in them anymore. Our mission is to make that change. Thank you so much. See you next week. God bless America. I love you. Take care.